Today's reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be hailed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Thank you. When I was younger, uh, so much younger than today, uh, when I was younger, we'd uh, often occasionally go to the beach. Um, there's only one great beach to go to when I was young. That was good. I was South End on Sea. Um, if you ever grew up in Essex, then you'll know that is the greatest beach in all the world and the place to go for a punch up on a Friday night as well. So it's got everything family fun and a bit of violence as well. But so South End on Sea is where we used to go um, as a family every now and again. And uh, we'd always play the same game as we drove towards the beach. And it was the, uh, the game called I See the Sea. I don't know if you played that when you were children or with your children, in fact. And, uh, and I guess it's just an elaborate ploy to get your kids to shush um, for as long as you possibly can because they're getting overexcited. But the most interesting thing happened when you played I See the Sea. Uh, number one, there was no prize for winning. So it's utterly pointless of a game of all of... You know, it's a little bit like Formula One. Sorry for those that like it. It's just pointless, isn't it? There's no point in it. Um, but the strangest thing happened mentally as you play I See the Sea, as you get towards the beach, suddenly everything begins to look like the seaside. I don't know if that happened, just in my mind. But suddenly the, the, the streets look a bit lighter as you get nearer the beach. You see a bit of sand and you start thinking, oh, soon I'll see the sea. It's beginning to ref- reflect and remind me of what's coming. And so we're doing a series um, at the moment, which is kind of following the same lines. Uh, we've titled this series of talks, Road to Freedom. Like everybody else, we're stealing Boris Johnson's phrase, uh, Road to Freedom. And we're journeying with Jesus um, in the lead up to Passion Week, as he does this quite sort of big loop around a particular part of Israel. And as he walks in a, a sort of circle and then heads back and heads into Jerusalem for his final week, um, he stops in four locations, stops in the same place twice, but stops in four locations. And each one of these towns, these locations, um, and what he does and the, and the messages he gives foreshadow the power and the effect of the cross. So in the same way that as I got towards the beach and I saw a sand or a lighter color or more of a horizon, I began to see the beach before I saw the beach. As we follow Jesus around these, uh, this loop before he heads into Jerusalem for Easter, we're going to see hints uh, of Easter, foreshadowing of Easter. And we saw that last week with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He was a man who'd been dead for four days. And Jesus announces to the world that he is a resurrection and the life by calling him out of the tomb and into life a foreshadowing of his own death 
and a resurrection. In fact, then a foreshadowing of our own deaths and our own resurrection from the grave if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. So we're titling this, uh, the sort of big title is Road to Freedom. And today we're in a place called Perea. I'm going to call it Perea um, because I spent all week thinking, is it Perea, Perea? Uh, so I'm going, what did I just say? What did I just say? What did I say? Prayer. Prayer. That's not what I said, was it? Uh, Perea. That's what I'm sorry, I can't hear. I definitely want to hear Mark's wearing a mask. So Perea. So uh, that's what we're going to go with. That is how you should pronounce it the rest of your lives. So Perea and the power of faith. And we're going to look at these two stories from Luke 13, 10 to 17 and Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. I want to go through both stories fairly briefly. Uh, they both teach different things, but they do both have similarities, which we'll come to in a minute. Interestingly, Perea, or however it's pronounced, it literally translates the country beyond which I thought was a really interesting uh, definition of that place name, the country beyond. And actually, when we stop with Jesus at these towns, as he does this loop before he heads into Jerusalem to give his life for every single one of us, we're seeing hints of the country beyond. We're seeing uh, God's kingdom breaking into particular situations, breaking into the tomb, in this case, breaking into a woman's physical condition and transforming her. And then the example with the little children, we're seeing that other country. We don't belong here. The Bible says that we are passing through. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're sojourners, is a, another translation puts it. We're passing through, we're traveling through. This is not our home. We don't build our lives in this earth because it's passing away. We're supposed to be building our lives in the coming kingdom, the other country, the country beyond. And that uh, phrase reminded me of uh, the chronicles of Narnia, of course, and, uh, and Aslan, often speaking of Aslan's country. And if you know the story, as well. You know, there's always this uh, sort of tension between Narnia and how wonderful it is, and really the real place, which is Aslan's country, the kind of country beyond. And that's really what it's all secretly about. And I found a quote this morning from um, The Last Battle, which is the final book in the series. And uh, let me read that to you, because I thought it was quite a, a good quote and a parallel, really, with how we should see uh, the end of our lives, the beginning of our eternity says, as he spoke, this is Aslan, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that we have all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. This is, of course, when they die at the end of the book. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only ever been the cover and the title page. Now at least they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The country beyond is better than this place where we live at the moment. And what great hope we have as Christians just thinking like that. And so uh, we come to our first passage, Luke 13, verses 10 to 7, uh, 17, uh, which Gareth has just read to us, so I won't read that one again. But it's a story of this uh, woman with this terrible physical condition. We find Jesus preaching and teaching in a synagogue, probably the last time he did that before he died. And as he teaches the crowd, he sees a woman bent over. And actually we're told that in verse 11 and verse 16 that she's been in this condition for 18 long years. She has suffered and suffered and suffered. And Jesus often seems to meet people that have suffered a long time. And Luke emphasizes that 18-year period twice in verse 11 and verse 16. 
And the reason for that, I think, is to contrast with the immediacy of the healing when she meets Jesus. Jesus calls her over in verses 12 to 13, and he places his hand on her, on her and he heals her. And in an instant, that 18-year condition is healed and taken away. How wonderful is that? Luke wants us to understand the quickness and the speed at which she is healed when she meets Jesus Christ. The key focus, of course, of this story is the ruler of the synagogue. In verse 14, he is indignant, we're told, we're told, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader then said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. If you've ever heard a more ridiculous statement, I think that's probably it. What a ridiculous thing to say. A woman is transformed by the power of God on a Saturday. And he's indignant that it's not on a Sunday or a Monday or a Thursday. It's on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is accused of breaking the traditions of the Sabbath. This is rule-keeping to the extreme. For this man, rules have become an idol. And we should be very careful as Christians that rules don't become an idol for us. That we live in the freedom of Christ. Uh, for the record, Jesus hasn't broken a single Old Testament law to do with the Sabbath. What he has broken is the traditions of men that have followed after the law in the Old Testament. They made many, many more laws and regulations themselves that weren't of God at all. And it's these that Jesus has actually broken, not the law of God, which he never did. He clashes with Sabbath culture. Elsewhere, he shows his lordship over the Sabbath, but here he's showing them the purpose of the Sabbath which is to bring freedom and relief and healing. In verse 15 to 16, Jesus uh, is very direct. He looks at them and he says, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? He's doing what's known as the lesser to the greater argument. He's pointing out the hypocrisy. You would look after your animal and feed it. You wouldn't let it um, uh, thirst to death, would you? Uh, Not starve to death. You wouldn't let it sort of thirst and, and have no water and then die. You would look after it. You'd untie it. Yet shouldn't this woman, who's a daughter of Abraham had the same untying from the thing that has kept her bound for all these years. It's interesting, the word untie and loosed used of, of the ox and the woman is the same word in Greek uh, to make that point and ram that point home. That Actually, if you're going to look after an animal on the Sabbath, why wouldn't God want you to look after this woman? And in verse 17 at the end, we see the people uh, were delighted with what Jesus said and did, but the ruler and his friends were humiliated at the hypocrisy And the message being, surely this woman is loved. This woman is cared for. In doing so, Jesus shows every single one of us how society should truly function. And what God expects of men and women across every nation. That women and this woman should not be ignored, but loved, should be protected, should be valued, should be healed. As every single woman should be, no matter where she may find herself or when she may find herself. So then we flick over to uh, Luke 18, verses 15 to 17, a very short reading, and I will read this one to you. The people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
At first glance, this doesn't seem very controversial to us. We live in an age where political figures used to, at least, be photos with a small baby in a crowd, you know, playing, speaking to a child with a one bended knee, uh, often posing with them for a photo opportunity. Yeah, in most ancient cultures at the time, children were seen as nothing more than a burden, a burden until they were old enough to contribute to the family. And so Jesus cuts across this convention and this cultural prejudice about young people and children. They're thinking, why bother someone so important with people who are so unimportant? But Jesus shows actually their value and they should be accepted and in the same time teaches about faith as well. And this happens today, doesn't it, with our young people? Often we talk down to them. In many cultures, uh, young people are dressed using almost a, a new language themselves. They often are spoken to with different verbs and nouns that adults are not used. In certain parts of the world, you use a different word to address a child or a poor person. But if you're rich and older, you'll use a different set of language and a different set of words is used just to keep them in their place so they know where their value lies. And actually, for the record, we're having our family service after this. And, uh, and one of the reasons we're doing it, actually, is we want to speak up to our children and our young people in this church. We want them to know that, actually, we're happy to move to 9.15 so that they can come at 10.30 with their families. We're happy to make the service as child-friendly as we possibly can because we can't stand to leave them outside of a Sunday morning service for another week. We want them to come in and feel loved and have fun and know Christ Jesus, not put them over there when it suits but actually we're saying to them as a church we are happy to move for you because we love you and we value you and that is a wonderful message to send to them and so that's uh, that both those stories done very quickly um, but actually these stories are very different but actually there are many parallels between them as well In both stories, there's someone seeing, someone being noticed, and then someone calling someone over. With the woman, Jesus sees her. He notices her condition. He calls her to him. With the story of the children, the disciples see the children, and Jesus calls the children over afterwards. There's a parallel there. In both stories, Jesus touches to heal or bless. The woman is brought to him. He places his hand on her, either on her back or her head perhaps, and he heals her through his touch. And in Matthew 10, verse 16, we know Jesus would have held that child and blessed those children by touching them. He breaks convention in both these stories. In the story of the woman, in the, he breaks the convention of the Sabbath. And in the story of the children, he breaks the social convention that understands children to be of low, no value at all. In both these stories, he rebukes very strongly wrong thinking. And there's a clear teaching point in both. The story of the woman bent over for 18 years. The message is surely one of value and one of importance as well. She is valued by Christ in a culture that had never noticed her before. And with the story of the children, the clear point is that a childlike faith is where real maturity lies. It's not how much you know of God, but how much you trust of him that really makes the difference. And so we've got those parallels And then we see the shadow of the cross in the background of all of this. Because surely at the cross, it's God seeing us. Surely at the the cross, like the woman and the children, God saw our brokenness and our sin. Surely at the cross, it's God seeing our distance from him and his blessing. Surely the cross is God moving first, calling to every single person loudly to come to him for transformation 
and blessing. At the cross and at that moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ, put our faith in him, isn't that the moment when we felt the touch of God for the first time? Where we felt his hand on our hearts and our lives and our head? Isn't that the moment that we too were stood up, upright for the very first time? Despite all that sin that pushed us back down, despite all those burdens that wanted to keep us bent double, aren't we the ones that Christ put his hand on our backs and we stood up straight for the first time with the hand of God? And isn't it that touch of God on our lives when we put our trust in Jesus that revealed for the first time our true value, that we are the precious children of the everlasting, eternal God? And are we not amazed at the boundaries that our God crossed to save us from our sin and our brokenness? He didn't just cross social convention to get us. In our case, he crossed heaven to earth, the ultimate boundary of death. He crossed that, that seemingly unbreakable rule where death is the ultimate end. Christ not only broke it at his resurrection, he made a mockery of it at his resurrection, swallowing death to life. And at Calvary, doesn't Christ rebuke wrong thinking? The last become first. The weak become strong. The neglected become loved. Our wrong thoughts about each other, our wrong thoughts about God, our wrong thoughts about ourselves are pushed back and rebuked by the Son of God as he stretches his arms out to die for every single one of us. At the cross, there is a clear teaching point that we are valued, that we are loved with an everlasting love by the eternal and perfect God. We live in a world where we are often anonymous. And isn't it at the cross where we understood that God sees us and wants us even when no one else does? When we let Christ in, that simple expression of faith, come into my life, Lord Jesus, that childlike acceptance, that mustard seed of faith, Isn't it then that the mountains that we could never climb begin to be moved for the first ever time? In Perea, we see the cross looming in the distance and we stand up straight like the woman and we find the touch of Christ like those children as well. We must live in these truths going forward. We must live in the joy of those two groups all this week and the days to come. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up all that we've said this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the example of Jesus as he walked, as he spoke, as he healed, as he blessed. And Lord, we thank you that you're close to every single one of us. Father, without your love, we are nothing. We are nobody. We are often anonymous and forgotten. We are often people, Lord, looked down upon by the world. And even if they don't look down upon us, that's how we feel. We often, Lord, despise our very selves. And Lord, you push all those things away when we come to the cross and the resurrection of your son. So may we be like the woman this week and know your touch again. May we stand up no matter what shame we feel. And like the children, Father God, may we know that no one can ever block our access to you. And may we just live in these two simple truths, knowing the cost of the cross to make them real in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.